I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... I suspect when you and I were going to college, virtually everybody graduated, and you graduated within those four years. Now, less than 60% in six years graduate from a four-year program. So it's leaving behind, actually, a very large... Estimates are, you know, called it 35, 40 million people who have started but never completed their degree. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. Hey, it's What's Working in Washington. I'm Mark Walsh. Coming up, Chris Honsarek is our guest. He is an education expert, venture capital, private equity guy. He talks about some things you are going to want to know about the education marketplace in both the U.S. and elsewhere. First, he started Sylvan Learning, thousand places around America, but Sylvan does training and tutoring all around the world. And he talks about how, what tutoring means in China and Asia versus America. Interesting difference, which you will want to hear more about from Chris. Secondly, he went to Johns Hopkins. He was on the board for many, many years. And we talk about Johns Hopkins, the Ivies, and that sort of top tier of universities. In fact, America has 3,000 four-year colleges. And those are the ones that really matter in 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 the educational marketplace. Lastly, We talk about U.S. News and World Report and these ranking services of those 3,000 colleges. Guess what? They don't rank all 3,000. So he gives some tips on what U.S. News and World Report is not telling you about colleges that you need to know. Here's our conversation. You're from Baltimore, but you really started as an entrepreneur at a remarkably young age, as has been chronicled. You were at Hopkins University and you started Sylvan Learning. Tell me about that. Yeah, and actually, uh, it, it, we actually were involved in something that predated Sylvan. Sylvan All right. Sylvan was a little further on when I was in my late 20s rather than early 20s. But uh, uh, we actually started a company that was involved in uh, early healthcare technology when things were uh, back in the early PC days when electronic claims processing was really still tape to tape from many computers. We took advantage of the early PC days and built a company that did early medical records and electronic claims processing that Blue Cross and Blue Shield ultimately acquired and uh, and then sold later on to EDS. So we were Far in the out. Early, early days of uh, healthcare on things. And, uh, Small and market. Ended, yes, but ended up moving into education uh, right after that. And so this was back in the mid-80s. So a long time ago, but early in the, uh, early in the process of technology sort of taking off there. What about, I guess you probably saw two huge markets, education and healthcare, where you saw slots or niches where you guys and your teammates can make a difference. Am I, am I correct in saying that? No, it's true. Uh, I, I think it's one of those areas when you think about the two biggest parts of the economy, the biggest being healthcare and education being right behind it. So education is about 17% of GDP, and education is well over a trillion dollars of investments we're making every year to wow. help people out. What we saw was really some of the same things in the early healthcare days. They were just starting to involve the private sector. Uh, they were still in those days just figuring out sort of data and analytics and other things that could make a difference in healthcare. And in some respects, education sort of suffered from the same thing. It was institutionally based, either funded by government or nonprofits. The vast majority, which still is the case today, if you think about the biggest being K-12, it's basically a government function. And in one sense, education has worked well. But on the other side, it has uh, always been exceptionally costly, grown in cost dramatically over decades, um, and not a lot of innovation because as a single government provider in the case of K-12, or in the case of higher ed, uh, a consistent group of institutions that have served, there wasn't a lot of innovation in the market. But we saw still this convergence point of these macro trends and saw an opportunity to say, Let's play a role at at points of innovation that could hopefully help things uh, get better at it. 
Well, before we go down the trail of education even more with the companies that you've funded and built and run and all that, let's go back to healthcare for a second. So if I could, did you expect the Blue Cross, the Blue Shields of the world to be a buyer of the company you built? Or were there other entities that you thought would be a buyer? Or did you think it was going to grow and be its own standalone? Yeah, you know, you always can go back and say, boy, we're really smart on one thing or another. The truth is, is that we were young kids and had an idea around data and storage. And we actually thought we had an early technology around uh, uh, storage technologies that you could keep actually in your pocket. And so the actual truth is we saw it actually applicable in healthcare. We saw it applicable in a number of different industries. And it was actually Blue Cross Blue Shield that uh, sort of linked first. And at the time, there were really issues that um, and you still have these issues. There was something called polypharmacy, which had to do with drug-drug interactions and lots of issues that, that I think at that point was about the seventh leading cause of emergency room admits. And what we said was record-keeping yeah. and, and, and centered around not only a medical record, but around the records around uh, your insurance actually were a good vehicle that could ultimately start to make an impact on health care. And if we could solve for that, which was you know, an aspiration that obviously even today is hasn't been solved. So, yeah. uh, but could you could you add sort of a technology and storage bent to it to make a difference on things? And and those were the early days of HMOs, which at that point had this promise of trying to alter the way healthcare was being delivered. Eventually, that just became insurance. But, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, so anyway, we saw that opportunity there. And you saying interaction of drugs that shouldn't be taken together is some large percentage of ER visits? Well, I, I can't say today. Back then yeah. it was. I, I don't know today whether or not things have gotten better. But yes, it was, back then it was one of the leading causes of ER admits. And you can imagine, especially as as, as we all get older, there are more and more chances. Where as we're you on, do, not me, just yes, for the record. That, that is true. And, yeah. and so all of a sudden you go from something. And, and by the way, the explosion of the drug industry has, has even contributed to it more. But in the end... Um, Yes, it was an important characteristic, and, and, and certainly as we've seen, as as people get older, they're exposed to a lot more of these things, and medical records aren't the best, and so all that became part of it. Now, it's been helped today from pharmacy systems and others, but that was the early genesis of the ideas. It's What's Working in Washington. We're talking with Chris hohen He's the Senior Managing Director of Sterling Capital, a private equity firm based in Chicago with huge participation and innovation in the education market.edu. So let's go there. And sorry for the – I mixed up on, on the lineup, but you did Sylvan Learning, which, I mean, everybody's heard of that. What what was the germ of the idea there, and how did it grow as you built the company? You know, again, like all these stories, I, I could tell you the perfect version, but – Let's uh, go. Come on. Go to perfect. <laughs> but, I'll, but I'll give you the – but but what's interesting, we actually started uh, with a business, a small business that actually was in the D.C. area called Key Systems that is no longer – but it was early computer-based training. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were young at the time, but we were sort of confident enough that we thought we could make a difference in actually operating the business. And so it was a small business that provided uh, really early computer-based training programs in the early PC world. And we were actually able to build it up over a few years to a decent-sized business but and came across Sylvan Learning, which at that point was a business we had – there were four employees and a very small operation in Montgomery, Alabama – and through some relationships, and it was part of a bigger company called Kindercare sure. um, that had gotten itself in financial trouble. And so they had this subsidiary, and they, they, uh, they actually went bankrupt at the time and uh, ended up – the banks actually controlled it. So we were able to uh, ultimately buy this little business because what we saw was this huge opportunity in providing these kinds of after-school support services for people. And yeah. we used key systems, that company, to – buy the original 
Sylvan, uh, moved four people from Montgomery, Alabama up to Columbia, Maryland, and uh, and then uh, hopefully build the business up. And we actually ended up selling Key to a Canadian company yeah. and uh, keeping Sylvan, which we then built. And we were really fortunate. We were able to build it very rapidly. And so in a period of about uh, three years, we were able to get it large enough to actually go public. So it was a, it was a, uh, a whirlwind during those early days. So. Yeah. Well, for those listening at home, you have to keep a little bit of a score sheet with Chris because as you're already hearing from you, my friend, um, the transactions and growth is it's head spinning sometimes. So I love how you keep it all in your head. I'm I'm in awe of you remember the brands and the companies you built and who bought who bought which and who bought what. And also, it's great to hear that you were negotiating with banks uh, <laughs> as opposed to a seller because banks probably wanted to get rid of it. Uh, a little bit of that for sure. So yeah, yes. yeah. So Sylvan became a Really, a national, maybe global brand, right? You did you did you go into Europe or other markets? We did in Middle East, in China, a few other places. Were uh, they as receptive to the U.S. market? Uh, yeah, kind of in, a, in several places it was. It wasn't the biggest focus, but it did end up. And 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 clearly around the world, the idea of tutoring to supplement what happens in the school is more accepted in some markets than the United States. In the U.S., we have a lot of activities that our kids are exposed to after school, from sports and other you know, dance and all sorts of other things. And in a lot of places, especially in Asian marketplaces, tutoring is is a massive marketplace. Yeah. And so uh, so it's and it you see parents going day and night actually to tutoring to supplement what happens in school. So yeah. so we entered, but we weren't the big, biggest by any stretch on that. So did did Sylvan buy other companies to grow, or was it internal growth, or what what happened? Yeah, we took it a few different ways. I mean, we we eventually got uh, the organization to about a thousand or so locations in the United States. Wow! And uh, that was that was a great journey on that side of things. But we also saw some other opportunities, and so the company uh, began servicing school districts for at risk kids. There's a there are federal monies called Title I funds that actually funded that activity, and that became as large or larger than actually Sylvan and, and that part of the business. And today that's a separate business, but one that came off of it. And we also built a business that was involved with converting the old paper and pencil exams to electronic format. Mm-hmm. And we faced this kind of uh, you know chicken and egg problem, which is to take the vision of being able to create on-demand, highly secure exams and retail points of distribution that you could take any day of the week, as opposed to that episodic paper and pencil exam and convert that, you had to be everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so there was a so people had had the idea for some years, but no capacity to do it. And because of Sylvan, we actually had this install base of locations everywhere, staffed by teachers without actually daytime usage, mostly were evening usage. Mm-hmm. So we went and approached people like educational testing service, uh, and ended up actually uh, kind of creating a, a bigger enterprise, actually, in converting all of uh, paper and pencil exams in major categories and built that company to a large – it's still around, a business called Prometric. Prometric. Okay, so we'll return to Prometric. But let's go a little bit into infrastructure questions because I know you and I have had many conversations about the collision or interaction between disruptive imp- – I hate the term, but but – how technology changes consumers' interaction with with entities and federal government unions and stuff like that. So American Federation of Teachers, uh, National Education Association, sort of, I guess, the t- I think they're the two largest unions representing teachers, K-12. Did they embrace what you guys were doing or where, where, where was that relationship? 
You know, I, I would say it's any organization, but anyone who today, if you're the establishment, yeah. whether that's government or unions or large companies, it doesn't matter, whoever the establishment is, there's always a bit of, of things that prevent change. I mean, that's their, their – when you, when you change the rules of the game in some fashion, current people always look at it and say, well, this isn't exactly what I'm used to. Yeah. And so I think any entrepreneur faces that eventuality, which is – and it doesn't matter if you're trying to – do anything, you face that. So I, I can't say that it's always a warm welcome, but what you I do find is that there are similarly uh, always people who are the innovators in any sector, and they're the entry point where you find, whether it's disrupting a large company or marketplace or something that is involved with government, uh, you always have to find that point of innovator who says, I'm less defensive about what change is and more embracing the idea that this may make life better for whoever it is I serve. Yeah. And that's where that's where we find the entry point. Our guest today is Chris Hohensarek. He's with a private equity firm called Sterling Capital and a venture firm called Avathon. Chris is one of the main dudes running it and the founders. We're going to talk about higher education, college, and particularly how your government dollars at both the city, state, and national level huge budgets are affecting or being affected by the kind of disruptive companies that Chris and his colleagues have started. It's What's Working in Washington. We'll be right back. Our audience is an obvious one. Folks that care about Washington, D.C. and the environs. Folks that care about the Federal News Network. Folks that care about our nation. If you'd like to have your message heard by that kind of audience, be sure to contact us for sponsorship opportunities. You can email me directly at Walsh at AOL.com. That's W-A-L-S-H at AOL.com. I will ask kind of in your sort of split brain, you've served on the board of trustees of Johns Hopkins University. You and I are from Baltimore. That's one of our favorite institutions. And at the same time, you've had great energy in altering what higher education means to people, how they buy it, what they get out of it, how they consume it, you know, in real time or not. Um, how do you how do you sort of manage those two moments when you're at a JHU board meeting and they're talking about building another building? Part of your brain must be saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not going to be buildings in the future. What What's that like? One of the challenges in higher education is, is that uh, different pockets talk about it as if it's one monolithic thing, and it's not. It's right. serving 20 million adults. And for the most part, the world isn't a Johns Hopkins, which is a research-oriented, selective institution um, aimed at sort of building anything from next-generation scientists to other types of folks. Um, and, and so it, uh, along with a lot of its peers, uh, often are talked about as higher education, but the reality is they're a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of what real higher education is about, which is really about uh, skilling up and making sure that Americans as a whole are well-served, not the 1%. One percent okay. are very well served, the Harvard, Princeton, Yales, and that's fantastic. And they will never at, at their worlds need not change. Okay. They can stay consistent for the next four hundred years. Yeah. On the other hand, I think for America as a whole, this is what we've invested in as a society to make sure that we have a successful next generation and a population that serves in what today there's a direct correlation between how well we do in our economic careers, if you will, and our level of education. And higher education is that bridge. And uh, and so we need a system that functions well, is efficient, works and aligns to the needs of industry as well as to students. Um, all those things have to function 
for that, not only for the 20 million, but the refreshing numbers, the four or five million each year that are entering the system. And it has to work well. And that hasn't always been the case. Agreed. But I'm wondering, is there a misperception? Because it used to be it used to be acknowledged that if you went to Harvard, your lifetime earning graph was going to be a certain line. And if you went to Mississippi State or some other entity, I don't mean that that they're bad or good, just as an example of the rest of the market, as you suggest, your lifetime earnings were a, a big delta. I keep hearing that that delta is being closed, that maybe not Mississippi State, but there's a huge chunk of higher ed where you're now prepared to have lifetime earnings that can even match the traditional you know, Ivy uh, graduates. Am I wrong? Well, I think that there are plenty of great alternatives to the Ivies, but you're still talking about the 1% at the end of the oh, day. Oh, okay. And so there are 3,000 four-year institutions in the United States. And um, 90% you and I won't know their names yeah. because they serve the local community. And it's not. So the large flagship institutions, state institutions, and whether it's Mississippi or Alabama or wherever it happens to be, are all, generally speaking, very, very good institutions and serve that top tier of the marketplace. Okay. But there are – so you can imagine there are only, you know, call it 100 flagship institutions in the country and then distinguished private institutions and another – you know, distinguished group of uh, liberal arts schools. And now you've addressed a few hundred schools out yeah. of those 3,000. So the vast majority is much, much broader. And uh, and th and there, there are differentials in outcomes, significant differentials in outcome between a lower performing higher ed institutions and higher performing one. And I'll just throw one number, which is, again, where I'd say you'd see a challenge or, or two numbers. One is it, back in 1980, there about 40% of the eligible population went on to higher education. It was a smaller industry, smaller mm -hmm. people served. And it used to be there was only about a 25% differential between a high school diploma's earning and a college degree. Mm -hmm. And so the world was simpler. And also fewer people went to college. And in the end, it was more – we had more of a physical labor economy. And today, the number has risen largely because of the student loan program, the federal program – uh, to almost 70% of eligible people. So it's grown substantially mm -hmm. in terms of access. But in access, it also got poorer in certain respects because many more people, less qualified coming in. And so today, though, the differential of a college degree is about 80% between a high school diploma and a college degree. And that's because we're in a knowledge economy that demands the additional education. Wait, wait, let's make sure we know that. So you're saying – if a person leaves high school and does not go to college, this mythical person, versus goes to a legitimate uh, accredited four-year university and gets a degree, their lifetime earning de delta may be 80%? Yeah, it's more than lifetime. Lifetime probably is even higher, but the wow. average salary, which is indicative of lifetime earnings, but you yeah. know, you're, there's there's some other characteristics there. But yeah, it's it's about 80% differential. Wow. And, and it really is, uh, but but you 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 had a key term there, which is graduate from college, right? And so the reality is, a large number of people start, but our college system today fails them because today less than sixty percent of people who start a four-year program will graduate within six years. So again, I suspect when you and I were going to college, virtually everybody graduated, and you graduated within those four years. Now. Less than 60% in six years wow. graduate from a four-year program. So it's leaving behind actually a very large – estimates are, you know, call it 35, 40 million people who have started but never completed their degree. And they didn't get the benefit of the bargain. And that's a big problem. And they have the debt in many, many cases. Exactly. So they're so, – so if you think about where the problem is, it's always easy to say, well, these college graduates – 
fill in the blank or they went to high school. But there's a very large population. And when you say, what's happening? Well, what's the worst thing to do? Start college. Fail out after one year for whatever reason. Could be social circumstance. Could be whatever reason. And then you're stuck with debt and without the benefit of the education. So these are sobering statistics. And, uh, you know, you look, you, you, you've built a tremendous career and still have one in filling the gap with innovative companies for opportunities where there are gaps. So you've talked about some big gaps. What, what are some companies or some efforts to maybe offer that 40% that don't graduate in six years a way to kind of make their life more complete and more, more productive? So today, you know, it, it, it's one of the, the characteristics, good and bad, of the, how the once a system gets set up, it works by incentives. And for the most part, higher education has existed without an obligation to graduate. And so that's what's caused this problem. There's mm-hmm. no incentive per se, the way money is doled out, the way the system runs. Um, it's only recently in the last half dozen years that anybody has started to really care about the fact that we're leaving behind so many people. Wow. So today – there is a start. About half the states are starting to adjust their funding of their own state institutions to think about graduation. or And still things like the federal loan programs are largely insensitive to that kind of characteristic. So now, in the recent years, there are a number of companies that are starting to focus in on these tens of millions of people, help them return back to school, complete, help people retain in school, um, all things you'd think would be front and center, but haven't been. Well, bouncing around, because I want to get to the for-profit four-year college, which I know you you and your colleagues have some investment in. In fact, I was involved with one. And for the record, I want to be transparent. I was on the board of one of the companies that Sterling was an investor in, a for-profit college based in Chicago. But U.S. News and World Report, the shibboleth, the easy-to-attack yardstick that so many people care or maybe don't care about for their peril, has, as you know, one of their rankings graduation rate in, I think it's still five years, but that's one of the rankings that they judge schools with. It sounds like that should be a, a more heavily weighted ranking. Do you agree? Uh, I do. I think you have to look at what's the ultimately return on your investment, right. the investment of time and money. Uh, but but to be clear, U.S. News ranks four or 500 schools. They, they don't say they ignore, but that means there are well over you know, 2,000, close to 2,500 schools that are basically not ranked. So, Got it. So they don't uh, ever hit the radar. Yeah. And that particular ranking is, again, applicable for a certain group of consumers who view the world through that. But the vast majority uh, are not focused on the rankings. And so, again, but do I think the, that this should be a part of the system? Yes, I, I do think it's important. So higher ed, the ivory tower we all know and love, you invested in a for-profit four-year college. Do you think the collision between – capitalism, the profit motive, and the higher, the the ivory tower traditional academy of higher education, will there ever be sort of a natural truce between the two, or do you think they are forever not going to be able to work together or understand each other? I think that there are plenty of innovations that have taken place in the sort of commercial part, the for-profit parts of the world that are today already being integrated. Things like online. Online was simply ignored by traditional four-year schools for so many years. And the innovation took place in the for-profit sector right. and then has been integrated into traditional universities. So um, I'd say actually going to see it. However, I do think that um, you know the more and more we focus on outcomes as opposed to how we do it becomes really 
the that becomes the the landscape where innovation can take place. If we're always focused on what the tax status of the person is, is it for-profit or non-profit, or how they exactly conduct things, that's a little bit different than focusing on do you have great outcomes. That's really what we should all be focused on. Let's focus, lastly, on that term outcomes. So um, I completely agree. I think the um, I think the career center and the graduation rate are two things we don't pay enough attention to that we probably should. If, if, do you agree with that? or do you I, wish, do. Yeah. I do, yes. Yeah, I think... I'm glad we agree. That, 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 was, that was a simple exchange right there. All right, let, let's go to some magic wand. And once again, we're talking with Chris Hohen-Sarek from Sterling Capital and Avathon Capital. Chris and I have known each other a long time, and we're good Baltimoreans, good Baltimore neighbors, although he went to a decidedly inferior high school in Baltimore called Gilman, and I, I of course, did, did not go to Gilman. But we won't get in there. That's another show. But right now, let's do one thing changed and one thing new. So you swim a lot in the deep waters of national regulation and even state to some extent with the companies you invest in. Is there one regulation or law that if you were the king or if you were in charge of everything for one day, you would get rid of? Yeah, I, I'll say I'll, I'll say it this way in terms of – and then maybe answer a little bit of both of your questions on that. Wait, don't – come on. Oh, I got oh, two questions okay, here. Right, right. Right. Don't so, kill it. So I, I, I would say – well, then, then let me put it this way. I'd say today there are two regulatory regimes, one that regulates for-profit in higher education and one that regulates not-for-profits. There should be one. I would get rid of that distinction. Okay. And make one accountable system that both sides have to align against, so that you're so that. Oh, you, wait, wait. Is that named the Department of Education or is it something else? Well, it's it's managed by the Department of Education. It's embodied in rules, regulations, and laws. So you'd have to sort of say, look, we're going to hold everybody accountable to the same standard. And to me, if we got beyond the how into the into what you get out of it. That would be a fundamentally better way to manage the ecosystem than today. I love it. If you were in charge, you would I, – I think that's a – you're right. You answered both questions with one answer, but I'm, I'm not going to penalize you for it because, in fact, that's the point, to, co- to coordinate, right? Right. And I'll give you one if you want the second one. I don't know if you have the second one. We do. But, but I'll give you the quick the one, one, which is higher education gives out today $1.5 trillion of loans Hello. to fund everybody. Yeah. It's not accountable to outcomes. It's not accountable how good the school is. It's not accountable to whether the students default or anything. I think if you realign the lending so that students make informed decisions as to what they are investing in, much like today the loans of you with any consumer loan, yep. and you knew that you were going to a school that defaulted everybody, never graduated, couldn't get a good job. There you go. And the interest rate reflected that as opposed to simply everybody makes blind decisions. You'd create an ecosystem that would improve higher education as opposed to today where it doesn't matter whether you go to crappy you versus a great school. They're both treated the same. And uh, that leads students to making bad decisions all the time. Transparency. What a concept. Our guest has been Chris Hohenserich. Chris, thanks for being with us today. Well, thank you. Chris Hohenserich from Sterling Capital and Avathon Capital. Chris is, as you just heard, one of the guys I go to when I want to learn more about the education market. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm Mark Walsh. Thanks for listening, everybody. What's Working in Washington is brought to you by a very talented team. Besides me, the host, Mark Walsh. We have our executive producer and editor, Tracy Madigan. Assistant producer is Anna DeGraff. And the theme music you enjoy is performed by The Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.